Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is the feature episode for November 2021. And our guest is Dana Stabeno. Now, Dana is a very well-known and successful author uh, whose books are largely set in the far northern climes of Alaska. Uh, I really enjoyed having a conversation with her about those books. Um, She's a pretty cool person. I I like that interview quite a bit. I think you will, too. But first, uh, let's uh, take care of business here and uh, talk to Lance Wright from Down and Out Books. Uh, Down and Out Books is the sponsor of Wrong Place or Right Crime. And every month, Lance comes on to let us know about a few of the titles coming out from the publisher uh, in that month. So let's hear from Lance Wright. Hi, Frank. And thanks for having me back to talk about a couple of new crime novels coming out this month. Scottish author Nigel Bird has his third book in the Rat Pack Police Procedural Series. Ain't that a kick in the head? When a man tries to woo back his ex-wife by making positive, at least to his way of thinking, changes in his life, his efforts are thrown back in his face. Now he can include murder and abduction among his newfound skills. Next up, we have Holland Bay by Jim Winter, a crime thriller set in America's dying rust belt. In the dead of winter, a pair of murders offer redemption for two people on opposite sides of the law in Monticello, a city long past its prime. For one, a career criminal, he seeks respect from the city's powerful drug lords. For the other, a special investigations cop, she looks for respect from her peers. Both will meet on Monticello's abandoned Pier 9 for their inevitable showdown. Thanks again, Frank, and I'll check in again with you next month. All right. Thank you, Lance. Some good books there to check out, folks. We'll hear some other recommendations later in the show from uh, some past authors. Uh, but uh, now, why don't we uh, jump into this interview with Dana Stabeno? Well, hello, Dana, and welcome to the show. Frank, thanks for inviting me on. Now, you are coming at me, who is in central Oregon, uh, in the high deserts of central Oregon, from Alaska. I am. Homer, Alaska. Oh, really? There's something about Homer that I should know uh, that, that brings a bell. What there, is might be a, there might be an awful lot of um, uh, Oregon fishermen who uh, fish in the area. Yeah, yeah. But they there there's at least one unscripted live um what, what do you call the television programs that... Reality are, shows? Not, thank you! Good, couldn't <laughs> think of the name. Sorry. But there it is. Yes. One, at least one reality show. I can't remember the name of it. That is filled out, filmed um, out on a uh, homestead out East End Road in Homer. Maybe that's what you're thinking of. I, I, did, I generally avoid uh, both reality shows and true crime shows. So too much of a busman's holiday for the second thing and not a lot of interest on the first. So I'm going to probably think of what it was the minute we hang up and I'll have to po- have to post it on Twitter. What an idiot I am that I didn't make the connection. I was like, probably I was born in Homer or something and I don't remember some dumb thing like that. I'll start following you on Twitter immediately. <laughs> well, uh, it's fitting that you are in Alaska because much of your uh, work, uh, two different series uh, is set there. Uh, as anybody who reads the Kate uh, Shugak, Shugak, am I saying that right? Or Shugak. Shugak is exactly Shugak. right. Yes. 
uh, or the the newer Liam Campbell series, both set uh, up there in Alaska. Uh, and ostensibly, we're here today to talk about the most recent uh, Liam Campbell book, uh, Spoils of the Dead, and we certainly will. But uh, I always find it interesting to explore a little further and wider when it comes to authors and their and their work. Now, you are a native Alaskan, you know, born, bred, worked, schooled, and now uh, your career all in Alaska. Um, have you traveled much outside of Alaska? Have you been a, a homebody most of your life or? I've traveled. I mean, you know, compared to friends of mine, I can't say that I've traveled a lot. I've traveled a good deal, you know, places like Peru and Morocco and Turkey. Oh, wow. And, um, recently, you know, I managed to skate into and out of Egypt just before COVID, um, mostly for research for the Isis novels. I haven't spent, you know, I've done book tours out, outside what we call the South 48 States with a capital O, don't forget, proper noun. <laughs> but I can't really say that I've traveled in the United States outside because book tours, you know, you're basically in one place one night and then you're in another mm-hmm. place another night and you just keep on going until you come home. Um, that's where I feel I'm lacking, really. I haven't seen enough of um, outside, enough of my own country, let's say. I've seen a lot of Hawaii. <laughs> and I've, I've seen a lot of the Southwest because I spend my holidays in um, uh, Arizona every year because I have what is it, basically extended family there. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen enough of my own country by any means. Sorry, that was sort of a segue. <laughs> well, no, not at all. You, I mean, you for someone who grows up in a particular place and goes to school in a particular place and then lives, you know, as an adult and, and has their career in a certain place. I mean, I guess that could be an accident of geography, but my my better guess is that there's something about the location, certainly I imagine family, but even beyond that, that keeps a person uh, there. And then is it just that that's home or are there pieces to it that you miss uh, when you're away? I was raised on Catmac Bay, just across the bay from where I live right now. And the two worst years of my life were when I was finishing my Bachelor of Arts degree in Fairbanks, Alaska, because there's no water except for that filthy river. And you can't see any mountains unless you drive out to Alvin and climb a hill and look north on a clear day. And if you're lucky, you see the Brook Range. Um, I feel, God, I don't want to be overly dramatic about this, Frank, but I'm, I, let me just put it this way. I live and write best when I have water and mountains around me. And in... I think it could only be here that, oh God, I, you know, and then that sounds like snobbish and exclusive. Um, there seems to be in Alaska an air of possibility, at least so I find it, that I do not find and have never found anywhere else. Not that I've really looked for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty happy here. I seem to write better here. I seem to live a better life here. I mean, from getting up in the morning till going to bed at night, I'm happier here, for lack of a better word. Well, that's the perfect answer. I mean, that's what we all want to be is happy and and, and clearly place matters when when that's concerned. Uh, uh, Certainly who you're with matters too. And and you've set both the the Kate Shugak books and the new Liam Campbell series. I say new, it's like, I think we're on book five with this new release, right? So it's, it's, I mean, I'm only on book seven of my River City series. So, you know, I, I I should, I wouldn't call that new. I mean, you know, it's been out since 2006. So I, uh, I don't mean to belittle it at all, Uh, but uh, newer than Kate. Um, But both of them are set in Alaska and having been in law enforcement in Eastern Washington, where we do get winter and we do get uh, some cold, uh, obviously it's, 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 jv weather compared to alaska uh the varsity cold that you get there but uh there are complications uh in life that occur from 
you know, inclement weather uh, uh, of that of that matter, and those translate over into policing and getting that job done, just like I'm sure they do every profession uh, that has to go outside, especially. Did you find that at all challenging, or because you grew up there, was it all just second nature to talk about the kinds of things that Kate or Liam have to deal with uh, with regard to the the weather that you encounter there? Well, as I said, I was just across the bay in a small town called Seldovia. And the first uniformed police officer I ever saw was when there was a stabbing in Seldovia. And I think I was, I couldn't have been more than eight or 10 years old. And because we knew the trooper was coming, all the kids scurried out to the <laughs> airport, the airport that was just basically a dirt strip to wait for him to fly in from Nilchik in his own plane. And I mean, that's that it and that experience is not at all unique to Seldovia. It's every small Alaskan bush town out there. You almost you there are many towns who they'll go years before they will see a representative of government in their town just because it's so hard to get there. And of course, it, the distance involved and of course, the weather. You know, there can be just truly awful things happening in a village and you don't have a uniformed police officer. You don't have an official representative come in and just like you know, take charge and just calm everybody down, basically, mm -hmm. by his very or her very appearance. That is first and foremost in the front of my mind when I begin a book set in Alaska. Um, I move my characters in and out of Anchorage a lot or, or move characters attendant to them in and out of Anchorage a lot because that's the big town. It, you know, it's the big town in Alaska and that is where basically everything is headquartered. All official things are headquartered. And I think that dichotomy, that, that uh, difference in population and sophistication and everything you need in one place and a place where you got to make do, you got to have good neighbors, you really have to be a little more careful with how you live your life, a lot more careful in some cases with how you live your life is, I think, um, part and parcel of the whole Alaska story. And it's difficult to explain if you haven't lived it, mm -hmm. um, but maybe not from somebody from Eastern Oregon, because things can get a little hairy out in the, you know, the other side of the Cascades, as I understand it. So maybe I'm telling my grandmother how to suck eggs. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. It, it, I mean, I did my policing in Spokane in Eastern Washington, and now I live in Eastern Oregon, cent Central Oregon, but it is on that uh, far side, the dry side of the Cascades in both cases. Um, and, and definitely we get inclement weather that affects your life, uh, more so in Spokane than here. Um, I just don't think it's anything to the degree that, that you obviously, I mean, you're considerably further north, and so the ravages of cold are considerably stronger. Um, what just for those people maybe who aren't familiar that you know that snow is is white stuff they've heard of and not seen. Um, <laughs> what is something about living in that environment that somebody who lives in Florida or or Arizona uh, would be like? Seriously, I never heard of that. I mean, it's just so different. Can you think of anything? Well, I don't even know if this is still valid or not, but this is something that we used to teach people. I worked up on the slope for six years in the oil fields, and this is something we used to teach new hires right away, the 30-30-30 law. You know, at um, the wind is 30 miles an hour at the 30 degrees at 30 miles an hour, 30 below zero, the wind's blowing at 30 miles an hour, exposed flesh freezes in 30 seconds. And since wind often blows that fast, and since the temperature often gets down to 30 below and lower in that area, it's a real concern. 30 Excuse seconds? Me. Yeah. 
Wow. Uh, yeah, expose fly spaces in 30 seconds. And that's why you don't go out without, you know, totally suited up. And it's why you don't stay out for very long. And it's why you keep trucks running and why we have bull rails that you can plug, tr plug trucks into. Now, Frank, I have to say that that is the northern part of Alaska that I'm referring to now. Mm -hmm. I live basically in the banana belt of Alaska. I'm in south central <laughs> Alaska. I'm on a coast. I'm where, you know, and it's always warmer on a coast. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's not to say that we don't get snow and not to say that we don't freeze up. but um, And not to say that we don't have extreme conditions. If you look at any weather map mm -hmm. in Alaska, historic weather map, especially one relating to wind right off of where I live. I mean, like right off of the brightest red, meaning the highest winds. That's where they are in, in the area that I live, right right off the offshore. But it's different everywhere you live in Alaska. It's the conditions are different, but they are almost invariably at some time or other extreme. Yeah, the wind is such a huge factor too. I, I did some teaching in Regina, Saskatchewan in particular, and that prairie wind there just... I mean, it cuts right through you and, and the, the wind chill is extreme. And so I guess if you multiply that a few times, you get Alaska wind. Um, so how, how have you, have, I mean, you have to have fun with this in that you can take your characters and plump them down in the middle of Anchorage, which is a, a modern, sophisticated city of how many people live in Anchorage? Um, last time I checked, I think it was about 325,000. So, I mean, that's I a big city. I mean, that's a big mid-sized city anywhere, yeah. right? I mean, uh, and so you've got that going on and that has all of the problems that uh, a city that size is going to have. But then, you know, you could two chapters later have them out in the middle of the bush, you know, worrying about that 30-30-30 rule. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, and I often do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's start a little bit here with Liam Campbell, even though he didn't come first. Um, uh, the Kate Shugak uh, books came first. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't say it. What an impressive, uh, prolific catalog you have of of uh, the Kate Shugak books. I mean, I might be counting wrong. I, a quick count when I jumped on your website, there was 22, if those last two were actually her books. Um, yep. so 22 books in that series. Um, so I lied, let's start with Kate because I, I, am too curious. Um, so, so, uh, she, uh, in the first book, a cold day for murder, which won the Edgar award that year, 1993, was it? Um, either way, three. three. Okay. So it won the Edgar in 1993. She begins the series as a former district attorney investigator. Do I have that correct? Um, Kate, I was writing science fiction, believe it or not, at the time. I that, do believe um, it. You've got um, some science fiction on your <laughs> site. <laughs> I had just finished my second science fiction novel, and I try, well, I'm, at least at that point, I was not reading a lot of science fiction because it was too much like work. So I was reading for uh, crime fiction, which actually was kind of the first time that I really dived into crime fiction. I was reading everything on the library shelves, just everything I could lay my hands on. And by the end of it, by the time I finished the second science fiction novel, I was, I, it was like, I just wanted a break before the third because you know, I have no background in the hard sciences and it takes a lot of research to, you know, hope and pray that I get things right. So I wanted to take a break. And so I, I've been reading crime fiction. And I thought, well, geez, I wonder if I can write one of those. So I wrote 
A Cold Day for Murder, which at that time was imaginatively titled Mystery. (laughs) 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 It was about 200 pages long. And I just, you know how they say that writers pile everything into their first book. I threw everything into um, the first Kate Chugak novel, all of the weird stuff. You know, the guy getting suspected of murdering someone when in fact he'd killed a moose out of season and then tried to dispose of the evidence. And, you know, additional complications because of um, Kate being related to him. And then, of course, the villain of the piece, whom I stupidly killed off at the end of that book. And if I'd known there were going to be 22 and more in that series, I never would have done that. Oh, for dumb. Um, the, the, I mean, it was just an exercise. I wasn't really good. I didn't even try to sell it to anybody until I sold my first um, science fiction novel. And my editor said, what else have you got? And then, so it's like, you never want to say no when an editor says that. Mm -hmm. So I went scrambling through my files and I found this one called mystery and thought, well, okay, maybe she'd be interested in that. So I went in, I tuned it up, thought, okay, that isn't terrible and sent it off to her. And that's, that's the story. That's Mm -hmm. the story right there. I just basically stumble bumped my way into it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you can say that, but, uh, and it makes for a better story that way, but we, you know, I mean, anybody who is around writers long enough or is one knows that there's a lot of work that went into that. And I mean, there's well, a there's a lot of overnight successes that spent 15 years. Yeah, the other last success, five right? years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, she um, asked for a three book contract and I was really alarmed. I said, what makes you think I have any more of these in me? <laughs> you know, what makes you think I can write any more of these? It's just one. Don't you want to just buy one? And basically she said, shut up and sign, Dana. So I did. <laughs> Yeah, she had the better of that argument, I think, as time would bear out, right? Yeah. Uh, she was right about 20 times, two, two times over, right? <laughs> yep. Um, so Kate is in a, is a, was a DA investigator. She gets drawn into this. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about long series, I think of, say, Lawrence Block and his Matt Scudder series, for example, uh, or Sue Grafton and the Kinsey Milhone. These are two, you know, mm-hmm. titan examples. Um, is how you handle the progression of time in your series. Does the character age uh, commensurate with the time between books? Is it is it uh, a snapshot in time? Is the time uh, slowed down and it, it, it passes but not as quickly? Um, and the same thing with career development and life changes. How have you handled that over 22 books? Um, as far as time is concerned, um, do you read, have you read um, Ed McBain's 87 Precinct yeah. series? Yeah. You're, okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I. Yeah, no kidding. Who does? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Anybody who likes good um, crime fiction, especially the hardball stuff, reads those. But if you remember when he first originally started writing those books, um, all of his cops were Korean War veterans, and later mm-hmm. on they became Vietnam War veterans. <laughs> and I actually started re- stopped reading them after Vespers, so I don't know if they eventually became sandbox veterans. Mm-hmm. The same thing, um, Spencer, uh, the Spencer series by Robert Parker, I think that happens as well. He's originally a Korean War vet, and or maybe he's originally a Vietnam War vet, and then is, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, that telescoping of time, if you are, if you're, if you're writing 22 books in a series, and it begins in, the first book that you publish is in 1992, 
I think it was 93, 93, and then it won the Edgar in 94, something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, so, all right, so then you have, so that's 27 years. So if you, if your character starts out in her 30s and it's 27 years later, she's not going to be able to be as physically active as you need her to be mm -hmm. if she is still on the front lines fighting crime right. and by the 22nd book. So I have a separate timeline that I created when I realized that I was, that this, um, a series was going to be going on for a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. I created a, a different uh, timeline. I was writing at, originally, I was on contract to produce two books a year. And I didn't like have a religious thing that I held to. I didn't have to start um, the next book immediately after the previous one. I, there could be a few months could elapse. And later on, when I didn't have to write on so the books so frequently, I could allow more time to elapse, but never too much. In the books, in the period of the books, I can't remember how, I think she was 33? I'm not sure, in A Cold Day for Murder. And 27 years later, she is now 40. I think she's about mm -hmm. to turn 40. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Kind of the Kinsey Milhone approach or the Sue Grafton approach. Not necessarily because not necessarily because Sue did a gargantuan effort at keeping Kinsey in that time. Mm -hmm. I don't think Kinsey ever had a cell phone. Whereas <laughs> I allow the modern world to come into the Kate series and just trust mm -hmm. the reader to come along for the ride. That's interesting. So you're almost uh, messing with the, the fabric of space-time a little bit. She's only aged seven years, but the world is aged 27 years. And we're just not, yeah, we're well, just going to kind of breeze over the top of that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a really interesting solution to the problem because the, the Sue Grafton model is kind of compress it down and keep it, you know, you know, what, 24 books or whatever it was, you know, in a, well, you know, pretty, seven year pretty, period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I've heard her speak. I heard her mm -hmm. speak um, on several occasions about how difficult it was to um, keep Kinsey rooted in that time period, how she had to really work at I'll it, bet. how she would accidentally write something into the narrative and think, oh, no, that didn't happen until whenever. Mm -hmm. And that's like, right. you know, 10 years after yeah. this time period. Yeah. I mean, really, you could say basically I'm just lazy and I didn't no, want to, have to I, work that I, I don't agree at all. I think it's actually a really intelligent and uh, I guess not unique necessarily, but kind of, you know, it's an innovative approach to it because, you know, the Grafton model keeps them rooted in that short time period, condensed, whereas like the Scudder model, the Lawrence Block approach was Scudder essentially aged in real time. I mean, he's in his 30s mm -hmm. in in the first book and he's in his 60s in the in the latter books and you see those changes of life that occur in both their life situation and of course growing older. But you've kind of taken the middle road that that that's different and I think it's a, a I hope readers or, or writers are listening because that's an interesting approach. It's one one that I hadn't considered. I think it's a huge talent being able to get the, the 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 historicity correct when you're writing historical fiction. Those things that you can't get wrong, like somebody pulling out a you know a, an iPhone in 1990, oh, and it's just you know. And speaking of iPhones, that's one thing that I you know it was it, it was in part a conscious decision to do this because I wanted to incorporate modern life into the books because modern life and particular technology is really, truly transforming Alaska life as it is lived. Cell phones have been a radical uh, change to Alaska and the more towers they build, the more connected people are. The It's absolutely essential for, to have any more, to, for everybody to have internet connect connectivity. And there are Alaska bush towns 
towns right now that are only just, I mean, God, I know one town that so only has dial-up. And I mean, it's just that kind of thing is essential to modern life as it is lived and made is only, I think, going to become more essential and effect. Um, and then, so that was one of the reasons that I, I picked up, a, I, there was a, there's a local mine here, well, local wannabe mine here that is not going to happen, yay, um, and put it into Kate's backyard because that way I could force technology into the park where she lives and it would impact the lives mm-hmm. of the people, of the park rats who live there. Mm-hmm. And I can talk about that. And of course, it, you know, extends to content. Conflict. It's going to affect the narrative, the plots, the way people interact, the things they do to each other. Um, it's it's essential, I think. I and you know, Alaska is the main character of the Kaczuk novels and of the Leon Campbell novels. And if I'm not writing about Alaska life as it is lived today, then I'm doing a disservice to the entire narrative, to the characters, to you know, the place itself. Setting is very important to me. And I think that's something that attracts a lot of readers. I mean, they, especially if they're either uh, from the setting or obviously very interested in the setting, they want it to be featured prominently or at least woven into the fabric of the story so that they can experience it while they're experiencing the story. And and so it sounds like you, you obviously are very aware of that. That was going to be one of my questions. So um, you you get uh, you get an A-plus in the guest column for answering the question before it was even asked. Uh, but uh, so... But- I always was an overachiever. <laughs> Well, 22 books in a series is is certainly pointing that direction. Okay, we will get back to our interview with Dana Stabenow in just a moment. But now is the time of the show where I like to turn things over to the experts. And by experts, I mean, well... I've meant lots of things over the course of the show. Uh, Sometimes I mean bookstore owners or employees, particularly those who work at the mystery bookshops, professional reviewers, uh, but also other authors. And in this episode, we're going to talk to some former guests who are going to make some recommendations on uh, books you might find interesting. So let's hear from Sebastian Fitzek, Rebecca Rosenberg, Matt Fitzsimmons, and William Kent Kruger. Hi, my name is Sebastian Fitzek, and I'm an author of a psychological thriller called The Package. Um, and I'd like to recommend a book which influenced me a lot when I was young. And if you have a chance to ever read um, a book of Michael Ende, E-N-D-E, um, who wrote The Never-Ending Story, uh, you should definitely um go for it it's it's an all-ager and i think it's um you can compare it to the harry potter series it's um it's really amazing and it's opened up um the world of fantasy uh my name is rebecca rosenberg i'm the co-author of at any cost and a really excellent book i read recently is bad blood um uh, about the Theranos scandal, and it's pretty timely given that her trial is just beginning now. Um, it's about Elizabeth Holmes and this sort of uh, incredible Silicon Valley crime. And it's it's it, the book reads like a thriller. It's excellent. It's called Bad Blood. It's John Carinu, I think. Uh, 
Hi, uh, this is Matthew Fitzsimmons, author of Constance and the Gibson Vaughn series. Uh, I've been asked to make a book recommendation, and I'm actually going to go with a, an oldie, which I had never read. I'm a big Dennis Lehane fan. He of Mystic River fame, uh, and it's Shutter Island, which was famously made into a movie with by Martin Scorsese, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. I was, yeah, I'm always been a Lehane fan, and this is just such a great. Uh, psychological, I mean, very much a psychological thriller, uh, two detectives in the 1950s going to a uh, mental hospital. I don't know that it, it's kind of the Alcatraz of mental hospitals. It's off in uh, uh, the North Atlantic on an island. It's just, it's a wonderful, it's got one of the great twists. Uh, if you don't know it and you haven't seen the movie, you know, it's a beautifully realized sort of character study and psychological study of uh, uh, these two federal marshals uh, who are trying to investigate, who are ostensibly there to investigate the disappearance of a patient who walked out of a locked room past 30 orderlies and disappeared onto an island with no way off. Uh, and obviously it's not what it seems, but it's a great, great read. This is Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane. This is William Kent Kruger. I am best known as the author of the New York Times best-selling Gork O'Connor Mysteries series. The most recent book is Lightning Strike. Um, and I have a recommendation for anyone who is listening out there looking for a great book to read, a novel called Winter Counts by David Wyden. It is um, set in South Dakota, deals significantly with the native population out there. And it is just a wonderfully uh, rendered story and a, a terrific kick-ass mystery. So it's uh, maybe the highest mystery on my list these days. Winter Counts is the novel. David Whedon is the author. All right, some great recommendations for you there, folks. Check them out if they interest you at all. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, writers know good writing. If another writer tells you a book is a good book, at the very least, uh, the writing is going to be good. Now, if the uh, subject matter doesn't appeal to you, then that's something else entirely. But you're not going to be reading a clunker when it comes to the craft. All right, uh, let's get back to our interview with Dana Stabenow. What is Kate's job in this series? Is it the same job the entire series, or does it change up, or is she always in the same role? She was a uh, an investigator for the uh, district attorney in Anchorage, and I chose that specifically because the district attorney didn't have any investigators, so mm -hmm. I could do and say and create that yeah. job however um, I wanted to. And something horrible happens to her, and she runs for home, as we often do, and just basically hides out, recuperating physically, mentally, and emotionally for 18 months, and then the ex shows up with a case that is right in her backyard. And she basically just sort of falls into the job of private investigator. She, there's a, I think they're in the sixth or seventh book. She's filling out her income tax forms and she can't figure out what her job is. <laughs> she can't figure out what to call herself. And I think, you know, for lack of something better to say, she finally says, all right, okay, I'm a PI. <laughs> Consultant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a very popular series and, and obviously has longevity. Longevity. And so one could imagine a number of reasons why you might decide to write the Liam Campbell series. But uh, there's actually a, a pretty interesting story there that you talk about 
I think in the foreword to the first book. Um, could you share that with readers? What, how did the Liam Campbell series come to exist? Well, first and foremost, you're going to hate me for this, Frank. I was writing the Kate Chugak series, and my editor left the house I was with and moved to another house and then came at me and said, when are you going to write me that series featuring a state trooper? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there was, there had been um, just recently, just recently to that event, um, a story. Uh, about a state trooper who fell down on the job and three people and five people died. I think it was five people died. And so I invented an entire backstory to this. I I pulled that. I I couldn't bear the thought of, you know, not redeeming the officer involved. I just couldn't bear it. So I made up a fictional character. And, you know, it's always good to start a series with your character at rock bottom Mm -hmm. because then they have someplace to go. (laughs) So um, the, the basically he's on his last at the beginning uh, he's basically been posted to a a town of 2000 you know in the bush no road no access other than by boat or plane and probably by boat mostly in the summertime you know okay he's essentially he's starting over he's been busted down from sergeant trooper and the first thing that happens when he gets off the plane is he runs into his ex-girlfriend who is standing over a dead body and the method of the murder is just one of my favorites my father was a bush pilot and he came home from herring spotting one year and i i went over to the house to see him and i walked in the door and he had a bandage on one of his fingers a huge bandage on one of his fingers and herring spotting not the safest occupation you ever heard of (laughs) believe me god i was not happy that he did it and i said so out loud really out loud before he went. So, you know, I was not at all surprised and greatly alarmed when I walked in to see that he had been injured. And so basically, I think to calm me down, he like very, very calmly said, started to talk about how he had stupidly walked a prop through on his plane with the magneto on. And halfway through his explanation, I held up my hand and I said, wait. And I went and I got a piece of paper and a pencil and I sat down and looked at him and I said, tell me how that happened exactly from the beginning. <laughs> and I wrote it down. And he was so relieved that I wasn't going to yell at him anymore that he happily told me the whole story. And that was how I used it for the murder method. So, so being immortalized, <laughs> your stupidity being immortalized in print is preferable to having uh, to getting yelled at in person. Not yell at you, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, uh, whereas you know, Kate's pri- a private citizen, and and she has experience, you know, in in the legal world and in and in, in investigations and everything. But but she's a private citizen um, doing this. Uh, whereas Liam is law enforcement. This is more of a procedural in that respect. Uh, so five books in, we get to uh, spoils of the dead. Now, between the first book and the fifth book, no spoilers here, but how, how does Liam's life progress before we get into what's happening in this fifth book? Uh, he starts at rock bottom. Well, does he clamber up a few uh, rungs before book five? He does. He does. And a lot. Uh, it turns out that there's a lot of crime in Newenham, the town to which he has transferred, and um, he does pretty well at uh, solving those crimes. It, a lot of it also it has to do with stuff that's happening uh, with his ex-soon-to-be current um, partner, Y. Schwinnard, Wynette Schwinnard, who is a bush pilot. And he kind of needs her services anyway because you have to fly everywhere to do your job in, Ala- in Bush, Alaska. And, of course, things are not helped by the fact that he's afraid to fly. 
which we find out practically on the first page. Uh, many um, uh, state troopers are, in fact, pilots because they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the troopers are always looking for pilots. Now, there are only, the last time I checked anyway, I think there are only 243 Alaska state troopers. And Alaska is a really big place, and they are stretched really thin. So a lot of authority is going to devolve mm-hmm. on Liam in this small town in the middle of an enormous area that he has to respond to, you know, events um, happening all over the place. So he's going to be able to take liberties that maybe not necessary. He's going to be able to overlook things. He's going to be, you know, whereas if he were in Anchorage and somebody was looking over his shoulder all the time, that'd be a different story. Some lieutenant would be yelling at so, him. So, oh my God, yes. So the, the I went back and revisited. God, this is going to turn into a long story, Frank. I'm sorry. I went back and I sent Kate two in the 19th Kate novel called Restless in the Grave. I think I sent Kate to Newenham because I hadn't finished with those characters yet and I wanted to revisit them. So I sent Kate to um, Newenham to help Liam on a case. And it turned out Liam shows up in the park asking Jim for help on this case. And Jim says, I can't take Kate. And so Kate goes down. And so, you know, Restless in the Grave, it's a Kate Chugach novel, but also it's Liam point, you know, (laughs) 4.5. So I was approached afterwards by my publisher saying, don't you want to write another one of these? And I thought, well, okay, let me see. But you know, state troopers move around a lot. It was really kind of unrealistic for me to leave Liam in the same place for as long as I did. So I decided, all right, what are we going to do? We're going to move him. And there's a backstory there that I, in between the last Liam Campbell novel and the and Spoils of the Dead, that I have sort of left up in the air that I haven't filled in the spaces to just in case I'd like to go back and explore them or something might like to come out of that into a future novel. Um, always got to leave elbow room. Very important. Yep. Um, so... Now he has moved um, posts from Newenham to Bluestown, which is on the road system. It has a regularly scheduled airline, and he has a whole new set of problems to deal with. It's a bit of culture shock for him and for his now wife, Wynette Schwinard. And she sold her business in Newenham, her um, um, air taxi business in Newenham, and is also starting over in Bluestown. So, and of course, naturally, Liam runs into, uh, Liam meets someone he really likes who was immediately murdered, and now he must find out what happened to him. <laughs> but there's no such thing as a quiet life no, in crime fiction, no. boy. <laughs> it, it's interesting that you would, um, if you're in a situation where you're secluded and there's not a lot of in and out traffic, like in the first few books that you're with Liam there, the nature of problems tends to be with those folks that live there and the relationships that they have and so forth. But moving to some place where there's now more traffic, now that added problem becomes the people that are coming and going. And I mean, just drugs, for instance. I mean, in the first instance, you'd be worried about people growing pot or now maybe mixing meth or something. Whereas mm-hmm. in the in the new place, it'd be more about trafficking. It'd be more about people bringing the product in already. And so mm-hmm. it, it is. It's a, it's not just a culture shock. I think it's a professional uh, focus sort of uh, jolt as well. You have to change up how you approach your job. One part I wanted to ask you about for in both of these books because uh, it, it is something that exists in Alaska as it does in here in the lower forty eight. How much of an appearance uh, do Indigenous peoples make in either of these series? And do you tackle some of the issues that uh, revolve around that? I tackle them all. Good. <laughs> yeah. Kate, you know, Kate is Aleut, um, uh, Sripiak, uh, and 
I incorporate Alaska Native history into the removal of her tribe from the ancestral homes in along the oceans and up into the park during World War II. It's rightly called the diaspora. Um, and the Alaska Native experience is a little different. Well, it's a lot different than, say, the indigenous experience anywhere else in the world, really, but also including outside. There's only one reservation in Alaska, Metlakala. Hmm. And the every you know ever since the ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, in um, 1972, I think, that basically they, they tried to you, – you're familiar with the Alaska – with the Alaska – Trans-Alaska Pipeline that brings sure. oil from the Prudhoe Bay Fields – down to Valdez. Okay, so right. Well, that they were going to just bulldoze that forty-eight-inch pipeline straight down the middle of Alaska without fear or favor or asking anybody what they thought about it. And the Alaska Native tribes, led by Willie Hensley and the village of Tionic, and I forget who uh, it was—a consortium of people—stood up and said, "Whoa, wait a minute!" Which resulted in the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, and uh, before they could build the pipeline, which allowed for the transfer of a ton of land and a lot of money to Alaska Native tribes. So now we have 12, I would call them powerhouse corporations that are Alaska Native corporations. And these are the people who are doing the really forward thinking about what life in Alaska is going to be like. You know, every time I drive to Anchorage, I'm looking off to the left at Fire Island, where Siri built three enormous, excuse me, 11 enormous wind turbines. You know, the in Kotzebue, the local Native Association there built three wind turbines. There's there's wind, just talking about one, you know, thing, not, not everything, but just energy, you know, self-sufficiency. Because Alaska Native villages spend the people living in the bush and, and, the largest amount of their money just bringing fuel in to get them through the winter to keep themselves warm and to you know run their snowgoes so that they're very much a part of they're they're the leaders of alaskan life they're they're the leaders of alaskan life you can't write in alaska without writing about alaskan natives impossible Almost a foolish question, given the fact that you you, you <laughs> consider Alaska, uh, you know, to be you know a character essentially, uh, the setting to be that mm-hmm. important. Um, but it, I, I wanted to get it out there and and for people to hear about it. So, Spoils of the Dead, it's not necessarily new. It came out last January, but it is the newest Liam Campbell book that's out there. Correct? Yep. It's actually, uh, I just have my free paperback copies. So. Oh, wow. So it has been, it's definitely moving down the pipeline of, of production then if it's already the paperback <laughs> volume. Um, but the Kate and Liam aren't the only things that you write. Now, you mentioned that you've written science fiction, um, but you're also working on some historical fiction. And when we say historical here, we don't mean set in 1990. I mean, I incorporated histor- history, Alaska history, into the Kate Chugach novels, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. There's like singing of the dead. I mean, it, the narrative bounces back and forth between the gold rush days and the present. So, and I'm always interested in that. We were talking before we went on air um, about... We're both, you know, you're you majored in history. I minored in it. I'm always reading it because it's fascinating to me. And I, you said something, and I'm going to misrepresent. I won't misrepresent what you say, but I won't quote you accurately in that these are still people that we are writing about. It doesn't matter if they're in 1327 or if they're in 46 BC. I did a series of a a trilogy of historical novels that featured Marco Polo's granddaughter traveling Silk Road um, west from China to England between 1322 to 1327. Now, is that that factual? Did did, uh, 
Um, he, well, did... there. I mean, well, you know, did Marco Polo have a granddaughter he left behind in China? Have you read The Adventures of Marco Polo? This was a guy who really liked the ladies. You know, he was extremely <laughs> interested in, and he was, he was in 20 years. I mean, don't tell me uh -huh. the guy didn't scatter some seed around. Yeah. So I invented a, a, basically a gift from the sultan, not the sultan, but the emperor, um, the uh, to gift from the Khan, it would have been then, of a woman that he loves and has a child by. And then, of course, he goes off home and she is left. Certainly and plausible, the, not, not, not. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's everything. It, everything is, I mean, it's, it, yeah. It, I mean, honest to God, this kind of stuff, really, if you read any kind of history at all and you attribute any kind of human action to uh -huh. individual human beings these stories kind of leap to mind it's probably it's more likely that it did happen than didn't if you yes. really think about it because like you said Absolutely. 20 years i mean let's yeah. face it you know some people 20 minutes was, is too long oh god and i you know there was a time there when i thought to myself maybe this should actually be a book about this one character meeting all of their her half siblings as she goes <laughs> west <laughs> they turned into something else so <laughs> i didn't do that um, so, but I've always been interested in the story of Cleopatra and um, I've, mm -hmm. you know, I won't say done a lot of research, but certainly dabbled a lot. And, I mean, you know, I flew out to Chicago to see a, an exhibit, a Chicago exhibit in the, um, a Cleopatra exhibit in the Heard Museum, I think is the name of it. Um, that was great. I read Stacey Ships by a very popular uh, biography, and I read a lot of other biographies. And I finally decided, okay, it's time to fish or cut bait. Let's write. Let's see if we want to write in this, in this time. So I invented the notion of, and you know, in every strong, strong arm ruler, every ruler has a go-to person to get mm -hmm. things done, always. Mm -hmm. That's it, man, even. <laughs> so so the Eye of Isis, and I posit the existence of the Eye of Isis coming down from Ptolemy one, 330 years before. And it's a, you know, something that each pharaoh always, uh, or uh, king always, or queen always fills. And in the beginning of Death of an Eye, the current Eye of Isis is murdered, and Cleopatra taps her longtime friend, Teta Sherry, to, um, who has an extensive backstory of her own, uh, to come in and fill those shoes reluctantly. She refuses the call to adventure at first, mm. <laughs> naturally. And, 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 th and this occurs at what point in Cleopatra's in life? Is this, is this, okay, is oh, this pre-Julius um, pre Caesar, pre... No, no, no. This is uh, at the beginning of Death of a Night, Cleopatra is heavily pregnant by Julius Caesar. Julius okay. Caesar is still in Alexandria, and he leaves mm -hmm. at the, at, during the course of this book. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And then the narrative continues on from there. The second book takes place about a month after, and the third book takes place, I think, a month after that. So oh, it's these very compressed for the present. Well, but the Cleopatra ruled for twenty years. I mean, mm -hmm. I have plenty of time to yeah, pull do. this series out. So, so what is a fascinating fact about Cleopatra that people that aren't his historians or aren't into history who just know that Liz Taylor played her at one point and that she maybe lived in Egypt or somewhere like what's something that people would be fascinated to know how long have you got fasten your seatbelts first of all Cleopatra was Greek she was right. not Egyptian. She was Greek, and she was mm -hmm. the and her most of her subjects, the ones who grew all the grain that made her the riches of Alexandria possible. Um, that the army, the grain that the armies of Rome marched on, mm -hmm. at least then, the breadbasket um, so, of the empire. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so she's Greek. 
and a ruler and living in Alexandria. The first thing that she is really reliably known to have done, because, you know, everybody wrote about Julius Caesar. People just wrote bullshit about, excuse me, <laughs> about Cleopatra, because most of the extant accounts that we have of Cleopatra are written by guys, written by guys who were in the pay of Augustus Caesar, who had an enormous axe to grind where yeah. she was concerned. So they're unreliable witnesses. They're unreliable narratives. You can't trust them. They're, they're hatchet they jobs, essentially. But, Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, one of the first things that she was known to have done was to escort the Bacchus bull in the persona of Isis, an Egyptian goddess, across the Nile to its temple. Because, you know, the bulls would die and then they'd have a new one to go in and gild the horns of. So that says to me and a few historians that, in fact, she is aggratiating herself with her Egyptian mm -hmm. uh, subjects. She's saying, okay, yeah, I'm Greek, I'm living in Alexandria, but I am representing myself as your goddess, escorting your bull to your temple. Please don't rebel against me. Because the Egyptians rebel, rebelled against every single Ptolemy except for her. I think mm -hmm. this was a political calculation on her part that she continued. So that's something. She spoke seven languages. Including Egyptian, which in, none in, of the oh, yeah. forebears yes. did. She was the only Ptolemy. She was the mm -hmm. only Ptolemy who ever learned to speak Egyptian. And that goes so, a long know, way, I think, that, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a sensible decision that none of her mm -hmm. ancestors made. God, what else? Jeez, there's just so much. Well, <laughs> well, she shared the throne with her brother for a period of time, and then there was a real wow. battle for. <laughs> yeah, you know, for, I mean, for she that. did that at Caesar's. He did that at Caesar's insistence. Sure. He came and basically he came and won the Alexandrian War for her and mm -hmm. put, installed her on the throne. Just barely, her. though. And let's let's be clear. I mean, the, the Romans were. Oh no! Yeah, yeah it, was, it was it was touch yeah. and go. These are a little dicey. I mean, he was forced to dive off the side of one of his own boats and swim mm -hmm. to shore. So because people, because he was, he had problems in Rome, as we know, major problems in Rome, and mm -hmm. he couldn't, you know, like attach Egypt to himself. He couldn't call it, you know, he couldn't say it was like his own property or part of his estate or anything, because then the people in Rome really would have had problems with that. So he tries to, he's, he's doing by putting uh, Cleopatra on the phone and her brother next to her is he is continuing the tradition of brother and sister rulers in Egypt during that time. So it looks to Rome like, yeah, right. And yeah, okay. So as far as Cleopatra's con concerned, He's her husband, and the at least according to most of the historians that I've read, and she's pregnant with this child, and is even Rome when even in Rome when he is assassinated. A lot of people don't know that either. Yeah, um, that part was true. That part was true in the big Cleopatra movie. Um, so she ruled. This is the thing. The fact that I found this was, I think, probably the coalescing moment. The moment when I realized this, I that I thought, okay, I do want to write a series set in this time. The fact that she ruled for 20 years. You know, because her story arc, Frank, her story arc is Caesar Antony dead. Yeah. I mean, really, that's that's yeah. when anybody ever thinks of Cleopatra, that's all they think about. Well, there's right. a lot more to her than that. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to whitewash her. I mean, the no. very first thing that she did when she came back from Rome after Caesar was assassinated was kill her brother. Yep. So solidified <laughs> her power. Every, yeah, she was I'm just she was a ruthless leader, but she I Absolutely. mean you talk 
I mean, to, to use a popular fiction uh, term, you know, she really knew how to play the Game of Thrones. I mean, she was, Absolutely. she was, uh, uh, you think of Cersei Lannister at her smartest and she was a bumbling idiot compared to Cleopatra. I mean, uh, stuff that I've read about her that I thought, uh, all the things that you talked about are fascinating. And, and additionally, I, I was always fascinated to learn how precocious she was as a young, younger woman and how... You know, like you have Liz Taylor portraying her in the movie as our version, 1960s version of what a beautiful woman looks like. If you look at like realistic uh, depictions of her that she would have approved of, you know, coinage and and, and stuff like this, uh, statues and other uh, stone art. Uh, she's not ugly, but she isn't. A, she's no Liz Taylor either. And so what I thought was fascinating is why men seem to be so attracted to her was was her personality literally her intelligence mm-hmm. her cunning her uh, willingness to do what needs to be done and know what that is to be successful at it and i mean you don't define her by julius caesar and mark anthony by any means but you do have to admire the fact that these are two of the three most powerful men in the roman empire and she was able to get both of them to align with her goals and you know, help further her goals, help her further her own goals. It wasn't only a matter of seduction either. And I would also point out that Caesar did not kill Arsinoe, her sister, Arsinoe IV. The, the contemporary account says that Arsinoe, you know, she was marched in chains in uh, one of Caesar's like four drives, I think, after he got back finally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that the crowd was moved to pity by her demeanor. Well, that's a bunch of baloney if I ever heard any. Caesar wanted a spare queen in his back pocket. I mean, for one moment, if you think Cleopatra wasn't aware of that threat, God, I mean, that, if yeah. anything else, that would have kept her in line. And right. then he sent Arsinoe off to live in seclusion in Ephesus. And I've been to Ephesus, and the toilets are made of marble there. So this was not hard time that she was doing. <laughs> Caesar was keeping her as a spare queen, no question, and Cleopatra was fully aware of that. I also think that there probably really was, as you were saying attraction between um, Caesar and Cleopatra, because I think it's entirely possible they were the two smartest people alive at that time. Seriously. And also there's the attraction. He was a 52-year-old guy and she was an 18-year-old girl. I mean, come on. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. And it's rather audacious. I mean, the story of her being snuck into his room, uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. a pretty uh, that's a pretty bold move. And I mean, you know, her and Mark Anthony... Confident. Yeah, exactly. And and, yeah. and and a little desperate. I mean, they were in the middle of a civil civil war and she needed the assistance. It was the only throw. It was the only throw she could make. Yeah. And and Caesar had to respect that because he famously let the dice fly himself. And mm-hmm. and, and and people make a big deal, uh, rightfully so, of him crossing the Rubicon and, and marching on Rome as being the pivotal decision of his career. But he had many Rubicon-esque moments in his career that were a whisper away from going the wrong direction. And so to see somebody like-minded in that way uh, and then have that personality wrapped up in the body of, a, of an attractive 18-year-old certainly probably is an attractive thing for him as well. He had to respect her. He had oh, to respect had to, her career. Had to. And her intelligence. Had to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it, it must have been a lot of fun to write in this world through the eyes of of the uh, her eye, uh, her, her go-to person, and to explore these characters. Because even though we know a lot about Julius Caesar and we know a lot about uh, Cleopatra, if you really look at how much we know, it's 
compared to say George Washington or a contemporary, you want to, you want to learn about Jimmy Carter, you know, it's a fraction <laughs> of what there is to know. And a lot of yeah. it is supposition. And so I just to circle back around to what started this uh, conversation, I, I have to imagine that you insert a lot of, okay, I know she's this type of person. What would a real person who is made up this way, what would they think and do in this scenario? How would they react? Uh, and, and you're probably pretty bang on with those guesses if you're applying that psychology. I'm trying. You know, I'm not going to get everything right. They're still, they're hunting for Cleopatra's tomb. I'm praying that they find it soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you one thing that I really love. But some of the scenes that I don't have, a, Cleopatra is not the main character. But of course, she's going to be the main influence, naturally, mm -hmm. because she's my character's boss. Mm -hmm. And also their childhood friends. And one of the reasons, one of the things that I love to write in these books are the few scenes that I have of them together. Mm -hmm. um, when there are other people in the room, Teta Sherry always refers to Cleopatra by her title. It's always Majesty or, you know, oh, 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 I forget what the one, but that's actually kind of a joke between them. So I shouldn't refer to that one. When they are alone, they call each other by their nicknames for each other, Patty and Sherry. And, you know, because they are childhood friends. Mm -hmm. But Teta Sherry is never forgetful of how Cleopatra expects to be treated in public, even if it's just Charmian or Iris walking in the door. Always. Mm -hmm. it's all, I'm always very careful with that. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, okay, it's a subtle thing. And it's not, maybe not anything anybody really is ever going to notice. And I notice it. <laughs> oh, and even if they don't notice consciously, they will notice it subconsciously. And at, at, at how important ceremony is. That is how leaders in that time, one of the ways that they projected power and, and, uh, uh, and how people, you know, show deference. Well, and especially, so. especially Cleopatra, because she manifests herself as the goddess Isis, mm -hmm. you know, and Caesarian as Horus, the god Horus, her mm -hmm. child. So she's going to be very much on her dignity at every opportunity because it's part and parcel of her power. Mm -hmm. And God, isn't power a lot just projection? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I can hate on season eight of Game of Thrones as well as the next person, yeah. but there were a lot of good seasons and there was a very famous passage in there where Varys talks about what power is and he essentially mm -hmm. says power is what men and women believe it to be. And and so therefore, you know, you can conclude that power is extraordinarily powerful and also very fragile. Uh, your grasp on it is fragile, and I, I think Cleopatra probably Cleopatra probably knew that, uh, having almost had it slip out of her grasp well, several times. Well, and she was her father's daughter. Mm -hmm. There's a good possibility that she was in room with him when he was there begging Pompey for money, put him back on his throne. Um, one of the first things that she had to do was pay off a tremendous debt to Rome, mm -hmm. um, because of her father. You know, God, I don't know how many different times he was i haven't looked that closely at Olides, but i you know people were continue, continuously rebelling against him mm -hmm. the first thing she would have done was make sure that that throne was firm under her backside mm -hmm. as yeah. firm as she could make it right right for sure um see now this is why i find history so fascinating because we we're talking about a very real person here and i guarantee you there is a large number of people out there who don't realize that when you say the ptolemies you're talking literally about the general ptolemy who when alexander died and they chopped up his conquests he got 
essentially Egypt and 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 some of you know some of the area mm-hmm. around it and began the 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 dynasty began with Ptolemy the first and they you know they took on the pharaoh ships there and that's why Cleopatra is Greek as you mentioned earlier and it's something people don't don't realize but again these were real people and and I, I I'm looking forward to reading this um uh, there are three books in the series now. Only one is out, or um, I'm finishing. I'm finishing the third um, right now. It'll will come, and the second one comes out in January on January 15th. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, Disappearance of a Scribe. The one I'm finishing right now is called Theft of an Idol, and that will come out in January of 23. And do you anticipate this going beyond three, or is yep. it a, is close ended? Okay. Good. No, good. No, I'm not I'm not done. I am not done with this. If I have to publish them myself alone, <laughs> I will. And I'm going to keep writing these. Well, I will definitely look forward to those. I I, I love history and I like well done historical fiction. You know, I'm staring me now. <laughs> <laughs> how how about Liam and Kate? Do they have more uh, coming down the pike eventually? Um, I believe, I think after, I think, don't, you know, actually, this is the first time I've said this publicly. As soon as the Dana Maniacs watch this thing, they're going to be all over me. So you, you be thankful I'm saying this on your show, Frank. I think that, in fact, I am going to be writing the 23rd Kate Chuyak novel um, as soon as I finish the third I Vices novel. But then I'm going to go right back to the I Vices novels after that. I started writing a Kate Chuyak short story, which turned into a book. So, <laughs> they you know, tend to do that sometimes. When the sometimes. muse knocks, you got to get up and answer the door. Yeah, or the or she will walk away, and you might get a card or a postcard, and that'll be it. <laughs> <laughs> well put. <laughs> uh, well, it's been a true pleasure to talk to you. Uh, such a prolific author, I and uh, I've really enjoyed uh, learning about Alaska, and I'm super pumped about the ISIS books as well, the Eyes of ISIS. I, I want to tell you thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been fun. They're not always. All right, folks, there you go, Dana Stabenow, a very well-known author and a very likable person uh, that I'm sure you've heard of. And um, now you know a little bit more about her different works, both set in Alaska and elsewhere. Uh, Like I mentioned, I had a really good time talking to her and I found her to be a very, very nice person. Uh, So if you haven't discovered Dana yet, check out her books. All right. On the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to Sarah Gailey. Uh, and Sarah wrote a book that is a little bit sci-fi, much in the same way that Constance was a book that we uh, talked about when Matt Fitzsimmons was on, but still close enough to crime fiction that I think it is, uh, uh, not going to be a stretch for listeners who are mostly focused on that genre. Uh, so Sarah will be here in next episode on Wrong Place or Right Crime. Frank Zafiro update for you. If you are listening to this on the day it drops, November 17th, 2021, then tomorrow, the 18th, Dirty Little Town, the 7th River City book, will be available. In fact, if you're a River City fan, every title in the River City universe, uh, with the exception of the Stefan Copriva mysteries, but every other title, all the River City main titles, all the associated ones, the short stories, everything is on sale. Beneath the Weeping Sky, book three is free. Everything else is reduced. A couple other ones are, are, are listed as free as well. So if your River City catalog isn't complete, the 18th to the 22nd would definitely be a good time to round it out. All right. Thank you, Dana, for coming on the show and for a really great phone call uh, when we did the interview. 
Thanks to Down Out Books for sponsoring the show and Lance for coming on and giving us some new books to check out. Uh, speaking of books to check out, thanks also to Sebastian Fitzik, Rebecca Rosenberg, Matt Fitzsimmons, and William Kent Kruger for making some suggestions. If your to-be-read pile isn't sky-high already, there's a whole... <laughs> seven or eight new books uh, from this episode to uh, keep you busy. And that, after all, is uh, part of the purpose of this show is to uh, connect readers and writers that uh, they might be interested in. Uh, So if it's the guest on the show or if it's a book recommendation uh, or whatever the case may be, uh, I hope that connection happens. So thanks for being here. Check out the sale on the River City titles if you're listening to this when it comes out. And I'll be back with you next week, along with Sarah Gailey and her book, The Echo Wife. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.